Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Able Voices Podcast. I'm Dr. Rhoda Bernard, Founding Managing Director of the Berkeley Institute for Accessible Arts Education, and I am proud to present this podcast featuring disabled artists and arts educators. We are inviting artists with disabilities to be guest hosts for the Able Voices Podcast. Today's guest host is Anna Cowley Ford. Anna Cowley Ford is a post-disciplinary artist from rural West Texas. Using her experiences living with chronic health conditions as a touchstone, Ford explores the often bizarre world of living with chronic pain and disabilities. Along with manifesting sensory experiences, her artwork conveys the social and domestic impacts of health conditions on a chronic scale and the patient's experience navigating the U.S. healthcare system. Ford's practice includes, but is not limited to, functional and sculptural ceramics, textiles, large-scale installations, video, and accumulated medical objects and documents. Artwork like self-portrait ceramic busts and fabric figures instigate conversations around the body, non-visible sensory experiences, and disability. After earning a BA in art from Grinnell College in 2011, Anna Cowley Ford established a studio practice and has shown in juried and solo exhibitions nationally and internationally, including in Dallas, New Orleans, Des Moines, and Leeds, UK. She will complete a Master of Fine Art in Studio Art in May 2022 from Maine College of Art and Design. Afterwards, she will continue her visual art studio practice. This includes making a range of work that can be exhibited in galleries and exhibitions and sold throughout her website and stores. When not in the studio or raising heck, Cowley Ford can be found in the garden. Hi, welcome to the Able Voices podcast. My name is Anna Cowley Ford, and I will be the guest host this episode. I am a visual artist from West Texas that visualizes the non-visible sensory experiences associated with chronic health conditions, the livelihood impacts of living with chronic illness, and navigating the healthcare industry. Today, we are visiting with Emma McLean. Emma is a textile artist living and working in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Her quilts combine quilting cottons with secondhand materials such as old clothes, or bed sheets, and often feature handwork through embroidery and hand quilting. She is interested in how textiles can make the invisible visible. Much of her work focuses around pain, time, and learning to be soft. She is working on a series called It Only Hurts, creating a quilted piece for each word in the McGill Pain Questionnaire. Hi, Emma, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. I'd like to start off by asking you to tell us your story as an artist. How did you start out? How did you get to where you are? Absolutely. So I'm a textile artist and I've been making art for a long time, but for much of that time, I shied away from the term artist. When you're working, someone working in textiles um, or traditionally, quote, feminine disciplines, I think it is easy to get pulled into the trap of saying, I'm crafty or I make crafts, but I don't make art. 
And I think that shift was a really important shift for me to make. And I'll talk about a few things that helped me transition into really thinking of myself as an artist. Um, so my aunt Joan was a quilter. We didn't call her work improv at the time, but that's certainly what it was, improv quilting. Uh, and she made the most beautiful quilts that I've ever seen, including this huge piece called The Human Condition that we had to baste outside on the deck because it was so large. Basting is when you lay um, your quilt back out and then the batting on top of it and then the quilt top and you have to um, clip it all together, connect it before you actually start the quilting process. So this huge piece and she taught me to quilt when I was 12 and I found it horrendously boring, like the most boring activity that I could imagine. And she said to me, um, that's okay. When you're ready, quilting will find you again. And of course, as a, <laughs> of course, as a 12 year old, I was like, whatever, <laughs> and skipped off on my way. Um, but when she passed away, when I was in college, I inherited a lot of her fabric and I hauled it around with me. I'm originally from the East Coast. I hauled it with me to Chicago. <laughs> I hauled it with me to Chicago, um, being still at that time, didn't think I was a quilter, didn't think I would be making anything with it, but brought it with me. And then around 2017 or 2018, I slowly started quilting. So of course she had been right all along. And around that time, I joined a group called The Midwives, which is an artist's group people are put into circles. So each artist is working on a project and they have a midwife who's helping to bring that project to life. And they are serving as a midwife to another artist to help them bring their piece into, into the world, which was a really magical thing to be a part of. And over the course of the year that I was in that circle, I was called an artist over and over and over again. Even when I wasn't making art, even when I originally joined the group thinking I was going to write a play and ended up making a quilt the whole time, artist, artist, artist. And I think that was really important for me to hear and really helpful in redefining myself in the context of what I make of that um, being an artist is an identity that you can claim and that you don't need anybody's permission to be doing that. And artists are artists regardless of what kind of art they're making or you know, I think that was a, just a distinction that I had always assumed someone else would, uh, like I would, I would reach a point where I would understand myself to be an artist and to get sort of forced into doing that uh, was a real gift. So I'm very grateful for that. Wow. That, okay. The whole midwives organization is incredible. And yes. that sounds so beautiful. And it's like, taking accountability or your like creative group I don't know and just like imbuing it with this other beautiful meaning yes I think so often as artists um you can feel like there's no control right like we submit to calls and we have no idea what someone will think of our art or all those things it was very empowering to be in that space and I also think it is really magical to be so close to someone else's artistic process and to witness that. And the people who organize the midwives are very intentional about maybe not pairing you with someone of the same discipline. So like, what does it mean for a textile artist to support a writer bringing a play into the world? What does that look like? What does expertise look like in that space? What does knowledge look like in that space? 
And I think that was really helpful in informing me feeling more like an artist is that 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 expertise could look different than what I had originally thought. Amazing. Could you share some about your experiences as a person with a disability and as an artist with a disability? Yeah, absolutely. This was an interesting journey for me. I resisted the term disability for a really long time. I had, and I think in many ways still have, a lot of internalized ableism that I needed to work through and continue to work through for myself and in my practice. And I'll say, as I continue to describe myself, I like the term disabled person, identity first language. We also use people first language. That would be artists with a disability. It's really down to personal preference, of course. Always defer to the person with a disability or the disabled person on what they want to be called. But for myself, I like the identity of disabled artists. And I think I've leaned into that more in recent years. So in my experience as a chronically ill and disabled person, there's not one specific experience that I can point to that says this is where my disability began. Some roots of my illness, I think, have been around for a really long time and only bloomed recently. Others I've lived with for a while. Um, so that has been interesting to navigate as well, how the language I use to describe my identity has changed my relationship to parts of my identity has been really interesting. I have severe food allergies and I've lived with that since I was very, very young. And I didn't think of that as a disability for a really long time. Mostly I think because when I'm in my home and I control the food in my home, it doesn't need to be considered a disability. That might also be known as the social model of disability that in an environment where I control some of the variables, my disability is less of a limiting factor than in other spaces. So that has been an interesting uh, shift for me. And of course, I've been a lifelong itchy girl. Uh, I've been seeing some content for itchy girl representation, and I, I feel really seen by that. Um, so all of those things, I think, have been present for me for a really long time. Grew up, allergies, eczema, asthma. My dad called me a triple threat you know, just the whole kit and caboodle. But in the fall of 2019, I entered um, a period where I was having tension headaches every single day. Uh, and that lasted for months and months until I was able to get on some medication to manage that. And I try to be honest about talking about medication in relation to disability. I think that's important. It's not the right decision for everyone, but I have found it to be a good tool in supporting me and managing my conditions. So I do try to talk about that in relation to my experience. So, and then around 2021, I started feeling really bad. I know that sounds really vague, but I think maybe will resonate to other people who are chronically ill, like something is rotten in the state of Denmark, but it, it's, it's hard to figure out exactly what it is. And I think if you go a long time without getting adequate care, it becomes harder to figure out exactly what the locus of the challenge is because it becomes this sort of all-encompassing, all-fulfilling um, thing. So that started to happen to me in 2021. And I went to a variety of specialists trying to figure out what was happening and ended up meeting uh, a really incredible headache specialist who helped me manage 
some of that. And I would say now I'm in very active management of my disability. And I think some days are really easy and I almost don't have to think about it. And other days, you know, it's, it's everything that I'm thinking about or doing. So to come back all around, how does that influence my work as a disabled artist? So I make some art really explicitly about illness. I make stretch textile pieces about migraine, trying to make that visual, um, since it is so interesting to try to describe pain to another person. Although something that's been really interesting from that piece is Others have seen that and recognized their own migraine or their own pain in those pieces. And that, I think, feels really amazing as a way of reaching across that gap and across that space. I also make large-scale embroidery pieces that I call my pain journal series. One of those is dis on display right now as we're recording at the Rochester Art Center in a show called Chronicles of the Chronic. And it's a large quilt that has embroidered phrases on it from the time that I kept a pain journal. So it's trying to figure out, you know, what was happening, was keeping this journal. Um, I think the journal did not maybe serve me as much as I had wished it would. And so I took that language and then used it for this piece. So taking this sort of discomfort that I had lived with and attempted to try to explain to others and then sort of transformed it into this comforting textile soft piece. So I think all of those are related to my art. I also think I'm also very interested in secrets and secretive things and hidden things, which I think also may be related to like disability and the idea of, of hiding something away and sort of the societal narratives around like hiding away disability. But I am, a, I, you know, I love secrets. I have a series of quilts where I spoil movies. Um, I'm really interested in that. <laughs> And that sort of thing. So, you know, it, certainly some very explicit work around disability and art, but also I think it infiltrates a lot of the work that I make. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm noticing kind of the timelines of when you started quilting and working with textiles is pretty close to when you were starting to have the chronic migraines, et cetera. Yes. I think at the time I would have said those were completely separate and not related at all. Um, but of course, in retrospect, I think I was looking, you know, for some control as well of being able to make this thing and hold this thing. And I think time is really challenging as a person with disability, like holding on to time or tracking time. And so being able to quilt pieces to see stitches that measured time, the time that I had spent doing things felt really meaningful to me. Yeah. And I can see that too. in like your journal piece of like, this was a thing that was supposed to help maybe find some patterns and that didn't happen. Yes. So yes. instead of feeling frustrated, I'm going to physically find comfort from this by making it into a quilt. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes. I think that we can want linear narratives from our illnesses and that I certainly, I certainly consistently want that for myself, a linear narrative. I think that is another piece for me is sort of trying to unbend the story or re or rebend as I feel comfortable. You know, the pieces are all connected, of course, because I'm one person, but also I think sometimes there's a desire to, to say, you know, before I wasn't sick, then I was sick, now I'm not sick again. When in fact, it's it's much more complicated than that, you know. And I, more 
this little cloud? Uh, I know our listeners would like to hear about the arts education that you receive. Can you talk about how you studied the arts and how you continue to learn today? Absolutely. So I don't have any formal digital arts training. I took art in high school. It was a requirement for everyone. I felt like I was creative, uh, but not naturally artistic, which I think is a not very helpful limiting belief and something we talked about a little bit earlier. My drawing skills were never quite, quite where I wanted them to be. And so for a long th time, I thought that was sort of the be all end all as a foundation for mm -hmm. art. Must be good at drawing to be an artist. <laughs> uh, in college, yeah. I studied theater. Um, I actually wrote my thesis on disability embodiment on stage. So, you know, all the pieces yeah. come back together. Um, I was interested in why we don't see many disabled people on stage. Mm -hmm. And it has in large part to do with the fact that disabled characters having um, like a non-disabled moment at some point in the play, like you know, the person who has been using a wheelchair suddenly stands up and walks, right, which automatically eliminates any non-ambulatory wheelchair users from being able to be cast in the show. But anyway, that's a little off topic. Ultimately, it was a topic that was probably too big for a single thesis paper, but I learned a lot writing it. Mm -hmm. And so after I graduated from college, I, you know, was continuing to be crafty, to be making things. And so I think a lot of the learning that I've done since then has happened in other places. I took a quilting class from Heidi Parks, uh, where I learned how to make a framed quilt and learned a lot of different quilting techniques from her that I definitely still use today in my practice. And I also took a narrative embroidery class with Maggie Muth, um, which is where I first started my pain journal series. So both of those people still teach those classes. Um, and I would absolutely remember, recommend taking them if you can. But I think that's where a lot of my learning happens now, directly from other artists in the, those sorts of spaces to pick up new skills. Uh, and a, it's a great place also to meet other artists in those workshops, uh, which I think is really inspiring. Wow. So yeah, building community that way too. Yes, absolutely. Can you share about your experiences navigating the art world and academia? Yes. I think the most challenging part for me of navigating the art world is um, the time piece. Mm. Uh, as a person with a disability, I, time moves differently for me than it does for non-disabled people. This phenomenon is sometimes known as crip time, and many, many smart people have written about that topic. Uh, so I would definitely recommend looking that up. But something that I've been working on a lot this year is letting go the idea of lost time. There was a period of time in my life when I would miss something because I was sick or I had a migraine attack and I would just think, well, I'll make this up later. Like the time was lost now, but I'll make it up. And of course, that was incredibly challenging to do and just a way to get yourself totally trapped, never be able to get out. So I've been working on saying to myself, like, no lost time, which is to say, I did not, I, I am not trying to find it again. It is gone. And yeah. that I have to let that go. I have to not seek to try to rec reclaim or find that lost time, that it is just, it's gone. And that is, that is what it is. And I think, especially uh, in the age of social media, it's really hard to if you make work slowly, because there is this perception that all artists are making art all the time. 
sort of endlessly prolific, which of course is not the case, but especially for myself, I, I, some pieces just take a really long time to make, take years. And that slowness, I think is an important part of my practice, but also one of the most challenging parts of, you know, wanting to create new work for the art world. And certainly when I see calls that have like, work must have been created in the last three years and things like that. Right. I think those are really challenging to see because if you make work slowly, then it may be really challenging to find art that you made in the last three years. Or maybe I made art that I was really proud of and then ended up in a period where I couldn't submit anything due to health stuff. And then, you know, is that piece now no longer eligible for anything? So uh, I think that can be really difficult in navigating the art world. And, you know, I think it would be great to see those kinds of barriers removed. Like, what is this recency bias and and right. who does it serve and who does it not serve? Um, you know, uh, is it necessary? And, you know, I think that's something I ask a lot when thinking about accommodations. My day job is helping people get accommodations is just is it is it necessary sure maybe it's the norm maybe it's the way things always have been done maybe it is the thing that people feel most comfortable with but is it necessary why why do we feel like we need to do it this way because i think some things are really really small and can make a really big difference in terms of inclusion and access and things like that a hundred percent i i've been feeling that way too as i'm this is my first semester teaching in-person classes. And so like when a student comes to me with an issue or not feeling well, like I'm incredibly giving an understanding because it's like, yeah, take time, take yes. time. We'll deal with it when you're feeling better. Like I'm yes. not going to assume this is an excuse to get out of work, <laughs> Yes, you know? Absolutely. Um, yes. Who is the deadline? Who is the deadline for? And what does right. the deadline serve? Um, and I, you know, it's, I think it's so interesting that the first thing that so many people jump to is like um, trying to cheat the system. <laughs> um, yeah. When, you know, when I've talked to other people who've had to ask for extended time, it's so difficult and so challenging to get up the nerve sometimes to ask for that. The idea yeah. that someone is just doing it to try to cheat the system like let's not build our systems around people who we think are abusing them right like right people abuse all kinds of systems let's not use that person that hypothetical person as the template for how and when we're offering accommodations um people cheat systems all the time you know i i just think that coming at it at that model just right. feels very ableist like uh, if you've ever actually had to ask for an accommodation for something, it's it can be an incredibly challenging process. And I think not one that people take lightly. Yeah. 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 It can be really hard to build up the courage to do that. Um, yes. um, the heavy side is just the, <laughs> the uh, frustrations with the system. Yes. It can be a very challenging system to operate within. So you're a very active artist. Tell us about some of your current work. Sure. Um, 
So at the beginning, you mentioned a project that I'm working on, which is the McGill Payne questionnaire. So that is a series of words, 78 words to describe pain. And I'm making stretched patchwork pieces for each of them. This morning, I was working on one for pricking. I'm really interested in the language that we use to describe pain. It's fascinating to me. I always want to hear about the way people are describing their lived experience. And so that project is an effort to take those words and make them physical. And what does that, um, how do I transform those words as an artist? How do I make them recognizable? What do other people see in these words and these pieces together? And I just think, you know, everyone, if you talk to anyone who is disabled or chronically ill, they know the the 10 faces scale, you know, describe your <laughs> on a scale of one to 10. Um, yep. I'm, sure, I'm sure you know it. Uh, yeah. And it's such a, I mean, to say it is an insufficient system, it is almost laughable. You know, it, yeah. it is so, it is so insufficient for trying to capture the pain of many people, but especially people who navigate pain as part of their everyday lived experience. And so mm-hmm. I am really interested in this, in, in trying to put words and trying to put multiple words to pain in an effort to, to try to reach across that space. And then Another piece that I'm working on right now, so something we haven't really talked about yet in relation to my work is that um, I love to find the humor and the absurdity in illness. I think there is a a lot of absurdity in uh, the disabled experience, or at least uh, in my experience of it. Um, And so I have dreams of building a physical patient portal. So uh, (laughs) that online space that you need to go into to try to message your doctors or find your prescriptions or make an appointment. You know, of course, they look different depending on where you're getting care. But I think anybody who has received care is familiar with these systems. So I really would like to try to build a physical patient portal that you could go into and interact with. So um, like the strange messages, the long and confusing <laughs> menus, um, <laughs> the like messaging system between you and your doctor that is so character limited that you never can actually describe, <laughs> you know, what you need. Um, it is such a difficult system to use, I think, for both, you know, for both patients and for yeah. doctors, nurses, <laughs> medical staff. Um, and yet so much of our care is funneled through these portals now. So what would it look like to to be inside of one of those, to interact inside one of those? So that's a project I've been working on for a while, made some quilted pieces with that, but it's something I'm hoping to explore more this winter. Because That sounds incredible and <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> like, <laughs> almost yes. like one of those... Um like escape room where you like like how do I get out (laughs) absolutely and like can I touch this can I open this what you know what what pieces of this move what what pieces of this don't move um right I think yeah they are such odd virtual spaces and anytime I talk to someone about this project they have a story about a strange experience they had while trying to use portal I'm holding back telling you mine right now. <laughs> uh, um, which, you know, of course, uh, you know, is horrible that we all have this experience of, you know, an inadequate system. But also I think um, 
there's a real camaraderie in that and seeing each other. And I feel like thinking about that project has also like transformed the way I interact with those portal systems. Like I used to feel a ton of frustration logging into them. And certainly, you know, I feel that frustration occasionally still now, but also I feel like I wear my artist hat when I enter it. And I think, (laughs) how could this become a strange piece of art or, you know, um, which, you know, I think there's a, there is, I am currently in a period of time in my life where I'm not as sick as I once have been. And that space from sickness occasionally, you know, like on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour level allows also for some laughter in those spaces. There have certainly been periods of time where that space has been non-existent for me. But I think being able to acknowledge the fundamental absurdity of trying to interact in those spaces uh has has changed a little bit the way I feel like I can actually interact with them which has been helpful um yeah a little bit of a breath of fresh air to not only have anger bitterness you know with it but also some like curiosity or like yes oh you're gonna do that okay well let's see what I can do with this <laughs> yes yeah, interesting oh interesting that you're choosing to do that in this way hmm can we can we try this again uh or uh, yeah. I saw a video recently of, of someone dancing to the hold music while they were waiting right yeah <laughs> like that's beautiful that is so beautiful and wonderful and I certainly have danced in my apartment to hold music I felt so seen in that in that space and in that way. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to sort of explore that more. And I'm hoping that, you know, if I can find a place to physically install it, I'm really interested in being inside portals with other people. Uh, what does it mean to be in that space with others and, and interacting with other people in there? Because um, sometimes I feel like I'm just on a side screaming into the void and I'm sure you know doctors feel the same way of just like oh the system is not built for me to be able to to reach easily through space so yeah uh so that's those are those are two things that I'm working on uh I've also been making some pillow versions of the medications that I take um so you know lots of different I like to have lots of projects going at once because I never know what my energy level is going to be. And so rather than feeling disappointed that I can't take up a certain piece, it's like, oh, it's just not Mm. time today for that project. Let's try something else. And I feel like I sound very zen right now. It doesn't often, it doesn't always (laughs) sound so zen as that. Sometimes it is um, pure fury as I pick up the uh, project that's more accessible to me in that given moment. But um, I think the variety is key for me. Yeah, that's also how I approach the studio too. And I don't know if I had quite pieced it together that it was for variety, Mm. depending on how my body or energy level is that day. But it was definitely things that people commented on when I was in grad school of like, Anna, you have five to 10 different projects you're working on. Like, can you focus? And it's like, but I need, I need like variety or even like, Sometimes when I come up to a problem, it's like, okay, I have to step away and just ruminate on it in the back burner or come at it with fresh eyes too. So I don't know. There's a lot of um, perks, I think, to having that, that variety. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. 
Uh, well, you just touched on this a little bit, but do you have any, uh, what kind of advice would you give to a young artist with a disability? Yeah, make your art, <laughs> which <laughs> feels very vague, right? But like do whatever you need to do to make your art. Um, earlier this year, I started a group called Sick Kid Fiber Club with um, Lauren Leone. And it's a group of chronically ill and disabled fiber artists. And we talk a lot about how to make our art process practices more accessible to ourselves, which was really mm -hmm. eye-opening for me because um, I have experienced doing accessibility like in cultural spaces and in theaters, you know, thinking about things like captioning and ASL interpreters and alt text, you know, all that sort of thing, but um, hadn't really thought about accessibility as it related to myself. So for example, a lot of my work involves text. And for many years, I felt like the right way to add letters to quilts was to applique them. <laughs> Sewing, applique, uh, which is can be difficult for me, um, but I thought like, this is the right way to do it. This is the way that real artists do it. And so I have to do it that way. And so I just didn't make pieces of art because the barrier to being able to do applique was so high that I just couldn't then make the piece. And then someone suggested, why don't you just use fusible interfacings? <laughs> um, and for a while, I was really resistant to that and just thought like, well, that's not real. That that wouldn't be real art if I was doing that. Uh, and so in pulling apart that belief, it, I just started using interface to attach letters. And guess what? Like you can, that's art too. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't mm -hmm. automatically not become art just because you're trying a different technique. Like... I wanted the art to be made. The most important art is the art that like exists, not the imaginary art that I could have made if I was a different me. <laughs> no one gets right. to see that art. The art people get to see is the art that I actually made. So I think that's been really important. Um, and then I think my other thing I would say is try to meet other disabled artists. Like meeting other disabled artists has been the greatest gift to my practice. Um, even if they don't work in the same medium that you do, uh, I mean, awesome if they work in a similar medium, but even if they don't, I think working with other disabled artists and some of the givens in making art in disabled spaces have been so helpful in my creative practice in that I think it's it can be easy in non-disabled spaces for people to to like take pity on you if you want to share about your experience having a disability. And there's so much more than that. There's so much more interesting if we can like push through the pity piece. And I think meeting and working with other disabled artists has really encouraged me to explore that place, that further place. So I think it is and has made me a better artist, but also the community that we were really talking yeah. about earlier. Um, yeah, the support network. Yes, it can be so isolating to be um, sick, especially if, you know, for whatever reason, your disability like limits you to being at home or limits you to, you know, a very limited amount of space. That community is so important. Um, we, we are, as humans, like meant to be in community with each other. And I think sharing ideas in those spaces the projects where I've had the opportunity to talk with other people, like the Patient Portal project, it has grown so much in just speaking that project into those spaces and with those people. They have enriched my practice so much. 
So I think that would be my second piece of advice. Try to find other disabled artists. The internet is a great place to do that. Try to find those people and reach out and try to make connections with them. I think everyone benefits when when you get to make that community. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for visiting today. I have like an entire page of scribbled notes. <laughs> <laughs> this has just been really wonderful for me, I know, and I hope also for the listeners. This is my last post uh, or interview for the podcast. Um, it's been absolutely wonderful to get to meet more artists and have conversations and get to know people's practices. So um, thank you, um, Able Podcast, for letting me be a guest host. And thank you again, Emma, for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It was so wonderful to get to speak with you. Uh, I really appreciate it. Voices is a production of the Berkeley Institute for Accessible Arts Education, led by me, Dr. Rhoda Bernard, the founding managing director. It is produced by Daniel Martinez del Campo. The intro music is by Kai Levin, and our closing song is by Sebastian Batista. Kai and Sebastian are students in the arts education programs at the Berkeley Institute for Accessible Arts Education. If you would like to learn more about our work, find us online at berkeley.edu slash B-I-A-A-E or email us at B-I-A-A-E at berkeley, that's L-E-E dot E-D-U.